Act Three of Tom Cobb or Fortune's Toy by W. S. Gilbert. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Scene: A drawing room, shabbily furnished, in Mr. Effingham's house. Cobb is discovered smoking a pipe on balcony with Caroline. The Effingham family is discovered grouped, Mrs. Effingham seated, old Effingham leaning on her chair with his arm round her neck, and Bulstrode standing moodily behind. As curtain rises, Caroline enters from balcony and throws herself at her mother's feet. Where is your poet-lover, Caroline? I left him basking on the balcony in deep communion with his inner self. Ah! what a priceless destiny is yours my babe to live a lifetime in the eternal sunlight of his poet brain it is but you shall share it father mother brother all we will all share it always i would not rob you of one ray that emanates from that divine face for all the wealth of earth my unselfish girl how nobly he looks when sickened with the world he turns his eyes inward to gaze upon his hidden self none but apollo ever looked as he looks then truly yet shall i confess that when i saw him first my idiot heart sank deep within me because in the expression of his thoughts i did not recognize apollo's stamp fie caroline would you have a poet carry his muse pickaback for doors to pick at fie caroline oh fie some thoughts are too deep for utterance and some too precious why should he scatter such gems broadcast my poet warrior thinks them to himself he does it is in his weird and warlike way he comes rises his fancy flight has ended for the nounce my soldier minstrel has returned to earth tom enters from balcony caroline goes to meet him and brings him forward lovingly his appearance is somewhat altered he parts his hair in the centre and allows it to grow long. He wears a very low lie-down collar in order to look Byronic. Caroline throws herself at his feet, and Mr. and Mrs. Effingham cross and group themselves about him. Mrs. Effingham kneels, Bulstrode standing moodily behind his mother. Arthur, ennoble us, raise us one step towards the empyrean give us a great thought from the vast treasures of your poet brain we beg some spare small change well i really don't know i haven't anything just now we are the bees and you the flower we beg some honey for our little hives tom with a desperate effort to be brilliant talking of bees all take out notebooks and write down what follows talking of bees 
Have you ever remarked how the busy little insect avails herself of the sunshine to gather her sweet harvest from, from every opening flower? Mr. Effingham writing. We have, we have. How true to fact. Bulstrode writing. You said her sweet harvest, I think. Her sweet harvest. Bulstrode writing. Her sweet harvest. All shake their heads and sigh. Her honey, you know. Thank you. Sighs. All finish writing and put up their notebooks. You are a close student of nature, sir. Yes, I do a good deal in that way. How simple are his words, and yet what priceless pearls of thought lie encased beneath their outer crust. Yes, I always wrap them in an outer crust to keep them from the cold. All take out notebooks and write this down. Caroline writing. He wraps them in an outer crust to keep them from the cold. And once I sneered at these grand utterances, just as we continually sneered at shapeless clods upon the road, which on inspection turned out to be jeweled bracelets of exceeding price. Nothing more common. It's the old story. The superficial mind... I'll take out books and write. The superficial mind looks for cream upon the surface of the milk. But the profound philosopher dives down deep below. Aside. Much more of this and my mind will give way. You are a deep thinker, sir. I can fancy Shakespeare to have been such another. Shakespeare? Shakespeare never said anything like that. How, how do you do it? I don't know. It comes. I shut my eyes, and it comes. All shut their eyes and try. I cannot do it. Ah, me, I shall never learn to talk like that. Mrs. Effingham rises, goes to Bulstrode, and leans upon his shoulder. Bulstrode, had you had communion with the Major General in earlier life, he might have helped to shape your destiny to some nobler end. Mr. Effingham crosses behind. Caroline and Cobb remain in conversation. No, it might not be. I am fated. Destiny has declared against me. Fettered to the desk of an obscure attorney, forced to imprison my soaring soul within the left-off garments of a father whose figure has but little in common with my own, who can wonder that my life is one protracted misfit? Mr. Effingham rising. My boy sneer not at those clothes they have been worn for many many years by the very old 
but very upright man. Be proud of them. No sordid thought has ever lurked behind that waistcoat. That hat has never yet been doffed to vicious wealth. Those shoes have never yet walked into the parlors of the sinful. Mrs. Effingham embracing him. I am sure of that, Adolphus. I am very, very sure of that. It may be as you say. I do respect these clothes, but not even a father's eloquence can gloss over the damning fact that they are second-hand. Turns up and exit onto the balcony, as Mr. and Mrs. Effingham exit lovingly. A blessing on him. Is he not benevolent? Yes, he looks so. Why do benevolent people have such long hair? Do they say to themselves, I am a benevolent person, so I will let my hair grow? Or do they let it grow because they are too benevolent to cut it off? There are thousands of such questions that appear at every turn to make us marvel at nature's strange decrees. Let us not pry into these dark secrets. Let us rather inquire whether you have any chance of getting anything to do. Rises. Now, there's no opening for major generals just now. And yet how nobly you would lead your troops into action, caracoling at their head on a proud Arabian barb, and rousing them to very frenzy by shouting forth martial songs of your own composition. Oh, it would madden them. Yes, I think it would. But at present, I've only my half pay, a pound a week. And we can't marry on that. Why not? It is ten shillings a week each. I am content if you are. Say, Arthur, shall we be made one? My dear Caroline, it's nonsense to talk about being made one. She takes out her notebook. It's my experience that when poor people marry, they're made half a dozen at least in no time. Arthur! Shuts up book. Well, I must wait and hope. Oh, for a war! Cobb much alarmed. A vast, vast, vast war. Oh, for the clash of steel-clad foemen. Oh, for the deadly cannonade. And loud above the din of battle, I hear my Arthur's voice, as like a doughty paladin of old, he cleaves his path where'er the fight is thickest. Oh, I think I can see him doing it. Exit Caroline. Yes, I think I see myself doing it. Poor dear girl. It's a shame to deceive her. But what can I do in the face of this confounded advertisement, which still appears in all the papers every day? Reads. Fifty pound reward will be paid to anyone who will give any information concerning the whereabouts of Thomas Cobb, M.R.C.S., 
apply to docket and tape, 27 Paragon, Summerstown. For just six months, this blighting paragraph has appeared in every paper in London. Everyone is talking about it. A Christmas annual has been published, How We Found Tom Cobb, and a farce called Tom Cobb Found at Last is playing at a principal theater. Enter Whipple. Whipple, you here? Yes, how de do? I quite well, so's Matilda. That name. She's downstairs with Miss Effingham. Downstairs? And does she... Don't think I ask from an improper motive. Does she ever talk about me? Sits. Never mentions you by any chance, but she often drops a tear to the memory of poor, dead and gone Tom Cobb. Oh, she does that, does she? That's rather nasty for you, isn't it? Not a bit. Sits. It does her credit, and I honour her for it. The poor fellow's dead, and there's an end to him. I loved him as a brother. Wiping his eye. He did my botany papers for me at the college, but it's no use repining. No power on earth can bring him to life again now. How she loved that man. Tom half sobbing. Oh, Matilda. Be good to her, Whipple. I will, General. Trust me. Is she... Is she as fond of the theatre as ever? Quite. We go every night. She used to call it the theatre. Whipple much moved. She does still. Bless her for it. And does she still like oysters after the play? Always. She bargains for them stout and oysters. She used to call them histers. She does still. Oh, thank you for this news of her. Oh, Whipple, make that woman happy. Trust me, I will. For poor dear Tom Cobb's sake, how she loved that man. Wipes his eye. But this is not business. The colonel, who is downstairs with Mr. Effingham, begged me to give you this, your weekly screw. Allow me, Major General. Gives him a sovereign. Thank you. The colonel is always regular and punctual with my little pension. The colonel is extremely punctilious about money matters. Oh, I quite forgot. He further desires me to say that from this moment he proposes to discontinue your weekly payment. What? From this moment your little pension dries up. Do you mean to tell me that he intends deliberately to break his plighted word? That is precisely what I intended to convey. And cut off my only source of sustenance? Absolutely. But hang it, man! Don't he know that his liberty and wealth are at my mercy? Yes, he knows that, and he's prepared to risk it. You see, General, Messrs. Docket and Tape are looking out for Tom Cobb. Tom Cobb's wanted. I don't know what he's done, but people talk about a forged will. He's advertised for every day. You may have noticed it. 
Yes, I've remarked it. Well, if Tom Cobb is alive, this advertisement is quite enough to keep him quiet. The Colonel, having this fact strongly before his eyes, considers that, as he has no further interest in Major General Fitzpatrick's existence, he does not see why he should be called upon to contribute to his support. But it's ruin! Hang it! It's starvation! Whipple, you used to be a nice man. Once, ask him to see me. Ask him to speak to me for five minutes. By your old niceness, I implore you. I can't resist that appeal. I'll ask him, but I'm not sanguine. You see, he's been in the constant practice of breaking his promise for the last sixty-five years, and it's degenerated into a habit. Exit Whipple. And I did that, man's. But I'll be even with them all. I don't care now. I've nothing to lose, and I'm a desperate man. My mind's made up. I'll write to Ducket and Tape and tell them the whole truth. Sits down to write. Now, Colonel O'Fip, tremble, and you, Whipple, tremble, and Matilda. Throws down pen. I would spare Matilda, but no, let her tremble too. Finishes letter, about to ring bell. Now, now, I shall soon know the worst. Enter Bulstrode from balcony. The Major General seems moody. On what is he thinking? On the sacking of towns, perchance. Bulstrode, you're a lawyer's clerk, aren't you? Cursed be my lot, I am. Do you happen to know Docket and Tape? I do. Who are they? My loathed employers. What? Why then, you know all about this Tom Cobb, whom they are advertising for, and whose name is on every tongue. I should rather say I did. A, what is he wanted for? Much. Yes, but what? What? It is a weird tale. Wild horses shouldn't drag it from me. But hang it! You can trust me. Bulstrode takes his hand. General, I think I can. But I'm sure I won't. But why do you object? Major General Fitzpatrick, had you the password of some leaguered town, and an enemy, armed to the teeth, demanded that word at the pistol's mouth, what would you do? Tell him at once, without a moment's hesitation. Then am I made of doubtier's stuff. Sir, I hate my employers, I loathe their unholy practices, but I respect their secrets. Good day, I go to them. Exit Bulstrode. So it seems I've had my head in the lion's mouth for the last three months without knowing it. Well, well. 
there is a grim justice in the fact that my punishment will be brought about through the employers of the son of the husband of the mother of the young woman to whom I was to have been married. Enter Colonel Ophet. No, sir. You've expressed a wish for an audience. On consideration, I have resolved to grant it. You're very good, Colonel. You may say that, sir, for I have discovered that you're an impostor, an out-and-out impostor, sir. You're no more a general officer than I'm a general postman. But I never said I was. You said I was a major general, and you ought to know. It isn't for me to set up my opinion on a military matter against a lieutenant colonel's. Sir, I'm a soft-hearted, simple old fool, and at first your military bearing deceived me practised I, and I was moved to pity by your plausible tale and your broken boots. I was touched by your sorrows, and I was disposed to try and heal them. The boots? The sorrows. Now, sir, a lie has ever been me scorn and aversion, and an impostor me deepest abhorrence. Colonel, I respect your sentiments, for they are my own. You discontinue my allowance, and you are quite right. Your hand. Sir, you speak like a gentleman. You're not a gentleman, but you speak like one. Sees note in Tom's hand. What's that? It's a letter to Docket and Tape, in which I confess myself to be the Tom Cobb they're advertising for, and offering to give them all the information in my power. But you're never going to send that? I'm going to send it directly. You're doing it to frighten me. Frighten a colonel? I wouldn't presume to attempt it. But, oh, you'll never send it. It would ruin you. It'll ruin us all. Rings. No, no. They can't touch me, mind that. I'm a simple old man. It's well known and easy done. Don't send that, Tom Cobb. And I'll pay you the pound a week. Damn, I'll double it, treble it. I'm a simple old soldier, and I'm fond of you, Tom. And I'll not let you ruin yourself for me. Sir, a lie has ever been my scorn and aversion, and an imposture my deepest abhorrence. Enter servant. Take this to the address at once. Exit servant. Effingham, Mrs. Effingham, Matilda, Bulstrode, Whipple, all of you, come here. To Tom. You've determined to inform on me grey hairs. I'll be the first in the field anyhow. Mind that now. Enter all the characters from different doors. Bulstrode and Caroline holding back Tom. Whipple and Matilda holding back Ophit. What? What is the clamour? Papa dear, what's he been doing to you? This man, who has passed himself off as a major general, he's a swindler, an impostor. 
He's deceived us all. He's practised on our inexperience. Arthur, Arthur, speak. What, oh, what is this? Don't call him Arthur. His name's Tom. Tom. Tom, Tom, impossible. Tell them, Arthur. Tell them it is false. Tell them that you are not. You cannot be Tom, Tom. His name's Tom Cobb. Tom Cobb, Mr. Bulstrode, and he's a swindling apothecary. The man you've been advertising for these six months. Caroline faints in Mr. and Mrs. Effingham's arms. Amazement. Monster, once more behold your work. Viper, creeping, crawling, unadulterated viper. I am Tom Cobb, M-R-C-S. There's my card, Tom Cobb, six. Producing handkerchief. Lead me away. This is a day of great events. We have sought you everywhere for six months. I know you have. Your advertisement has been the nightmare of my life. Amazement! There was a nameless old man who bore so strong a resemblance to you that scoffers called him by your name. He died in squalor, barely six months since. All is over. Lead me away. He was supposed to have much money in the house, though not a penny could be found. But besides this untold gold, there was standing in his name a sum amounting to twelve thousand pounds. I know nothing about the twelve thousand pounds, but I am amenable to the law. Take me to my dungeon. No dungeon yawns for you, O oh happy sir. Wealth, wealth waits you open-armed. What? 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 You had a father once, that father yet another of his own, the aged man so strangely like yourself. That aged person had a son, that son another son that son your father and that other son yourself then i am the old man's grandson that is the same idea in vulgar phrase you are his grandson and his heir at law caroline reviving my poet surgeon and my old old love embracing him my son my brother well colonel i must trouble you to hand over the property if it's inconvenient it is from behind his handkerchief well i'm sorry that's all maybe you're sorry sir but you're not so sorry as i am I'll go bail. Papa dear, don't fret. Sure, I'm a poor penniless girl now, but ain't I going to marry a handsome and generous young gentleman of good fortune? Leaning on Tom's shoulder. 
and won't he be your son to you, and give you a home for the rest of your days? Whipple appears to remonstrate with her. Caroline expresses indignation and clings to her mother. But I protest. Tom Cobb, you speak like a gentleman. You're not a gentleman, but you speak like one. I accept your offer with pride and gratitude, my son. Seizes his hand. Get out! Shakes him off. Whipple, take this young lady. Matilda, go with the bills. Hands her to Whipple, who takes her up, expostulating with her. Caroline, you loved me as a penniless but poetical major general. Can you still love me as a wealthy but unromantic apothecary? I can. I can love you as a wealthy anything. We all can. All. They group about him. Mr. and Mrs. Effingham on each side, bolstered behind, and Caroline at his feet. The Colonel, Whipple, and Matilda seated at table, with their hands buried in their arms. End of Act 3 End of Tom Cobb, or Fortune's Toy, by W. S. Gilbert